Amen. Hey, let me, uh, let me encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's Word today as we come to another text in Paul's wrap-up to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, and I'll be reading down to verse 5. This is the Word of the Lord for this morning. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Great to see you all. You doing okay? Awesome. Woo! Hey, pretty cool we're starting a school, huh? Isn't that awesome? Yeah. um, The Lord's been gracious and and faithful in in the midst of these kind of dreams that started a couple years ago. Just to hear it announced is a little bit surreal. But we pray that it will do uh, this generation that's coming up in our area a great, great service in the days to come. And I'm glad that we're jumping in. There's, uh, when you plant a church, you start a church on risk. And so you just keep risking as you go to do as much damage against the kingdom of darkness as you can for as long as God gives you breath. That's how we're going to live as a church. And so we're going to do that. And... Uh, we're, gonna, we're not losing sight of the Folsom Church plant. We, we have aggressive plans on that. Some people want to know how that's going to go down. You're going to have to tune into a podcast that's coming out. We're going to kind of give a state of the church update because you know how I preach. I can't take my time right now and tell you about all this awesome stuff that's going on. So we're just going to have to unload it into like an hour and a half podcast that'll come out through Doxologic in a couple weeks. And there's more to come on that. Chris is nodding. Is that okay? Am I okay to say that? A little premature, but I was inspired by your announcement after all, and I felt like I needed to say something. It's very much at work, and we're excited, so the Lord's doing much. That being said, my name's Scott. Hello. I'm the lead pastor at Oxford Church. It's great to have you with us. First Timothy chapter 6. Do you have your Bibles? Yeah. Great. Isn't it awesome that you actually use your Bible at church? Come on, someone said. Come on. Come on. Come on. You need your Bible at church. The day someone goes, hey, you're going to Doxa, you don't need a Bible, that's the day you should leave our church. <laughs> Honestly. If that ever happened, where you were like, yeah, yeah, come to my church. Oh, you go to Doxa. Yeah, oh, no, you left your, your Bible in the car? Oh, don't worry about it, you don't need a Bible. You'd be like, yeah, that's, that's a good opportunity. to be like, maybe we should look at another church. Want to get after God's word this morning, as always, and so I'm just going to jump right in. We've got plenty to cover. I'm excited about what's here. Another sobering reminder from Paul to Timothy. Title of the message this morning is A Diagnostic for False Teachers. And he's kind of, Paul's kind of been harping on this false teaching thing, hasn't he? 
I use the word diagnostic here because in the medical field, a, a diagnostic is a procedure that is used in order to detect diseases. And uh, I use that terminology because Paul's terminology in chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, are heavily medical in their um, origins. They explain what false teaching is, but from the perspective, as Paul sees it, of a spiritual disease. And I need you guys to see this today because what I recognize in being human, and I think we would probably agree with, is that physical health for us trumps spiritual health. If we feel like we're hurting physically, we will get that checked out ASAP. The problem with spiritual health often is that we don't know when it's not going well for us. Because a lot of times spiritual health, um, when you're not hurting, you can take in stuff that's not good for you, like, I don't know, like a lot of candy, even though that doesn't do your body good, and for a time, it doesn't really affect you. And so we have this problem where spiritual um, disease can seep into the church through false doctrine, through subversive teaching, and can do quite a bit of damage. In fact, if you were to really think about it, though we seem to prioritize physical health over spiritual health, one has a greater um, degree of danger. If physical health goes poorly, the worst thing that can happen is death to your body. If spiritual health goes poorly, you can die eternally. And this is a serious, obvious problem. It was enough to sway the great Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my heroes and probably the greatest preacher of the 20th century. If you don't know Martin Lloyd-Jones, he is worth reading. Ian Murray has an incredible two-volume biography on Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Martin Lloyd-Jones was the next up-and-coming doctor in London. He went to St. Bartholomew's Hospital, graduated with a medical degree, and was working under the most prestigious doctor in London at the time, treating all the famous people. And he was starting to realize again and again as the Lord was drawing him in that all he was doing was helping people heal physically so that they could t continue to go back into their world and sin with that new health in their body. And so he made a drastic change to go away, lay aside all of the aspirations of being a doctor and go into pastoral ministry. And people would look at this decision that he made and think, man, why did you give up such a good work? I mean, I can understand you giving up work if you were working, you know, I don't know, flipping burgers or something, but you gave up being a doctor. What are you doing, right? And this was his response that I found so interesting. He said this, he said, quote, I want to heal souls. If a man has a diseased body and his soul is right, he is all right to the end. But a man with a healthy body and diseased soul is all right for 60 years or so, and then he has to face an eternity of hell. Ah, oh, yes, we have something to give up. We have sometimes to give up those things which are good for that which is the best of all. 
Morton Lloyd-Jones very much, I think, echoes the heart and sympathies of Paul who would very much agree something serious is at stake with our spiritual health. And he's protecting the church at Ephesus who had fallen into this. He has been pressing on this since chapter one, verses three to seven. He hits it again in chapter one, verses 18 to 20. He hits it again in chapter four, verses one to five. And he finishes in this kind of concluding sense to give us what I'm gonna call a three-step diagnostic test to spot false teachers. If there is such a danger about false teaching infiltrating the church, and evidently Paul was pretty convinced of this himself, knowing the necessity to preach the whole counsel of God's word, he says in Acts 20, to the Ephesian elders, he's going, listen, I, I, I preach the whole counsel of God's word because two verses later he knew that there would be fierce wolves that would come in after them who would lead the sheep away from them, and those false teachers would come in from among themselves, and so we have to have a way of detecting spiritual malpractice. What does it look like? Not from the perspective of the teaching, but from the perspective of the, of the teachers, okay? How do you know when your pastor is a charlatan? How do you know when the podcast you listen to is false teaching? How are we able to get to the bottom of that? Well, you may not know these people as well as you would like, but Paul gives us three steps towards a test to spot false teachers. I wanna give you those three, and then we're gonna walk through them. The truth test, the pride test, and the motivation test. Three tests, the truth test, the pride test, and the motivation test. You're gonna see each one of these as we break down the text and you'll see the corresponding verses behind every test. All right, so let's jump in. The truth test. Does their teaching deviate from scriptures? Okay, does their teaching deviate from scriptures? Now you'll notice how I put that. Some of you are like, is that a, is that a spelling error from scriptures with an apostrophe S? Um, no. I'm not trying to say, does their teaching deviate from scripture? I'm trying to say, does their teaching deviate from scripture's teaching about itself? In other words, all the false teaching that is gonna be the most compelling is gonna have a whole lot of Bible in it, okay? There are so many ways to use the Bible unbiblically. I'm gonna to hope to give you a few of those today. The issue is not whether or not someone uses the Bible. The issue is, are they using the Bible biblically, okay? Are they deviating from what scripture teaches? Remember, we, I think I said this last week. I don't remember when I say things, but, but the Bible can never mean what it never meant, okay? So we gotta get scripture's teaching accurate in order to understand how it plays into our lives today. Now, if using the Bible biblically is the goal, and that's what I'm proposing here, then how are we going to know? Well, there's a two-fold orthodoxy test built into this question. Namely, is it aligned with the true gospel? And when you assess it, does it produce true godliness? This is really the straightforward simplicity of the text given to us today. Here's how Paul starts. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine. Now, 
when he's giving us this kind of intro statement, this is called a first-class conditional statement, which is to say that he's assuming the reality of this. So it's not really if, it would probably better be since. So then you would reread it and you would say, since one teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up. Got it? So, so if we don't, if we think about it like, I don't, like most of the time it doesn't happen and maybe it's possible that at one point there would be a false teacher that would rise up. That's not how we're to think about it. We're to think about it as since, since false teachers do rise up, since false teachers are present in the church, we need to understand some things about them and what they teach and how they operate. And Paul gets to this word that he trademarked. You remember that word we looked at in the very beginning of chapter one, that word hetero, didaskalon, other teaching? You hear the word hetero in that? Like the opposite would be homo, same versus different. He's using this word hetero to say someone's teaching something different. Different than what? Well, teaching that differs. Differs from what? Well, something that's deviant. Deviant from what? From what scripture teaches, right? Uh, He says a different doctrine. Here's what we don't know. We don't know what kind of doctrine he's talking about. You see an example in here? Now, obviously, he's got one in mind, And it seems to be connected to the way these teachers were using the Old Testament to justify themselves before God instead of using it as a mirror to see their sinfulness and realize they were in need of a Savior only accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. So we know a little bit about what was going on, but I think the way Paul's writing, both in chapter 1 and in chapter 6, is to write in such a way as to say, hey, this different doctrine can include any sort of subversive doctrine to the gospel of Jesus Christ that would ever come up, whether in the first century or the 21st century. It's broad. Paul uses the word hetero for the gospel that's false when he writes to the Galatians in chapter one. He talks about a other gospel, but then he reminds us that there's really not another gospel People may claim to have another gospel, but there isn't another gospel, and anyone who teaches another gospel, let him be anathema, right? Or condemned for that. So we don't understand what exactly he's speaking to here, but it seems to have the same wavelength as chapter one, and it's broad enough to include every subversive doctrine to the gospel that the church could face, He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with, and here's where we start to get the language of the medical field, with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word sound is the word where we would get the English word hygienic from. It means clean, wholesome, life-giving, healthy words. If you're teaching something that doesn't align with the sound words, those healthy words, wholesome words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what he's not saying here is, I'm specifically talking only about the words that we have quoted from Jesus. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the quoted words of our Lord Jesus Christ, you think that's all he's talking about? Well, it would be hard to defend based on what the Bible says about itself. Colossians 3 says you ought to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And guess what he's talking about? Everything from Genesis up through Malachi. 
and more specifically, we could get into the apostles' teaching and the fact that Peter calls Paul's teaching the scriptures. So if we were to really understand this, you've got Jesus himself talking about to the disciples in Luke 24, the fact that he sat down with them, interpreted them to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You got the apostles teaching and one of the apostles calling another apostles teaching the scripture. You've got Colossians 3.16 calling the scriptures the word of Christ. You've got 1 Thessalonians 1.8 calling the scriptures the Bible the word of the Lord. You've got 2 Thessalonians 3.1 saying the same thing. In other words, if anyone doesn't, uh, t- if anyone teaches or since one teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sound words concerning our Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures. That's the idea of what's going on here. Don't think of it as just him quoting himself. The only things that we're concerned about are what Jesus said specifically. In fact, when people do that, that's where you get a disconnect in the view of inerrancy. Um, one of the disservices that has come, and I think a lot of people have enjoyed it, I'm just going to say it, is a red-letter Bible. That has been a disservice to the church because there's this subtle undermining of the Word of God as if Jesus was saying things that were soups of the Word of God and then you had subs of the Word of God. Super Word of God, kind of average Word of God. One that has a little bit of authority over the other. Now, it's not to say every single part of the Word has equal authority in what it says, Okay? But it is to say that if we start to kind of tear out the word of God, you can extrapolate that into all kinds of issues and problems. And so we're talking about the word, the sound, clean, healthy, wholesome word of the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ. How can we say that? Well, because the whole Bible is talking about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Jesus takes the Bible and goes, let me show you where I am in the whole thing. Everything's about Jesus. Everything's beelining to Jesus, talking about what Jesus did or foreshadowing what Jesus has accomplished and inaugurated in his death and resurrection. This is profound. So, how do we get here? How do we get to this place where we're teaching a different doctrine, something that does not agree, does not align with these sound words? I wanna give you some examples so you can be kind of thinking about this and and aware of this and having some discerning categories with which to deal with. Two big ones, and we'll break this down a little bit. One of the areas of how we get this lack of agreement, how we get this teaching, is by the twisting of scriptures. And the other way we get it is through doctrinal indifference kind of two sides, twisting of the scriptures or doctrinal indifference. I think these still play out to this day. I'm giving you examples of how we get a different doctrine. How does it come? Let me give you some examples. Uh, One, the evolution of truth to fit culture, okay? We are watching, first of all, we are watching the goalposts move on basically everything in our culture, aren't we? It once meant this, now it means this. A vaccine was once this, now we're defining a vaccine like this. Controversial? Okay? The Bible says this, and we would agree on the word, but we're going to use a different definition. Some ways the scriptures are twisted, overextending a truth. Take a truth like healing. Do we believe that there's healing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course we believe that there's healing. Do we believe that um, 
there's an appropriate way to understand how healing takes place so as not to assume that once you accept the Lord Jesus Christ, your life gets perfectly better in every way. That would be an inaccurate way to understand that, but sometimes we overextend truths that will make people respond to that. We're going to find out why in the motivation test later, but we have issues with people overextending truths. There are issues with people omitting truths. So you'll preach, and it sounds pretty good, but you're omitting things. You'll water down the gospel, so you'll talk a lot about how Jesus will make your life better, but you don't talk about what Jesus needs to save you from. And so there's an omitting of certain things that can distort the truth of the gospel. You can add a truth to the scriptures, and of course we have some examples of how that didn't go well. But maybe one of the biggest battles for our day is the same words, different definitions battle. Same words, different definitions. I want you, it's so funny to think about this because this can seem so uptight, but Christianity truly is a battle for the dictionary on the terms that are in the Bible. Who gets to define those terms? I wanna just give you an example of this. If you were to go back in history and you were to look at the Nicene Creed, which was in 325, AD. So this is a while ago. The Nicene Creed was a gathering of pastors to essentially assess the reality of whether Jesus was homoousios of similar essence to the Father or homoousios of the same essence of the Father. Doesn't sound like a big deal, does it? Athanasius said it was a contending for our all that needed to take place there. That that little subtle difference was a contending for our all. The Nicene Creed was signed by all but two bishops that gathered. They affirmed biblical words, but here was the issue. They were denying biblical meaning. The group that would say that Jesus was not of the same essence of the Father were the Arians, and Arians were trying to Cease the biblical high ground by claiming a Bible-only approach, no other delineated, definitive uh, understandings of the words being used. In other words, they wanted to stay with Bible language only to smuggle in non-biblical meaning into that language. And so they signed the, the Nicene Creed, but then what really got them going and why this is so important historically is that we realized there was an importance in the church to establish in everything we're saying what we're actually saying behind what we're saying. It's called affirmations and denials. We believe in the omniscience of God. Most people would say yes. We believe in the sovereignty of God. Most people would say yes. When we get into affirmations and denials, what we're saying is by saying we believe in the sovereignty of God, we are affirming this and we are denying this and that's where you start to see the the waters part. We believe in the omniscience of God. Everyone would say, yes. We are denying the reality that there is no part, we are denying the reality that there is any part of the future that God doesn't know and hasn't ordained. Okay, that's where you start to get the problems. Affirmations and denials has been a huge part of Christian history to help us labor and defend the gospel and the doctrines around the gospel for the sake of our all, as Athanasius would call it. Now, we do have to understand this. As we try to seek after, making sure the truth is preached clearly, we also have to have some level of sense of understanding of what I'm gonna call theological triage. 
which is this word of saying, um, triage is another medical word, by the way, and if you were uh, a medical uh, doctor uh, working for an army, and you had a guy come in that had sprained his ankle on the field, and a guy come in and his leg was blown off, you have to triage which one of those you're gonna do first. Does that make sense? And we would obviously take the guy with the sprained ankle, right? The other just hemorrhaging blood. You're like, hang on a second. How's your ankle? Can we get some ice on that? You're like, forget the ankle, dude. Let's deal with the leg that's blown off, right? There is some triage that happens. Listen, the same thing is true in doctrine. So while we want to be ferocious about our commitment to scripture, we need to understand that doctrine is triage. You mess with the deity of Jesus Christ, that's the hemorrhaging leg, okay? You want to discuss eschatology in your small group? There's room to be like, man, maybe a sprained ankle kind of a reality. We could talk about that. We can discuss it. Somebody's wrong. We may not never ever know until the Lord returns, right? They're different. So there has to be some of that going on, but nonetheless, these are some of the ways that this can happen. Twisting of scriptures to produce doctrines that may sound biblical, maybe hold the biblical language, but don't have biblical definitions, don't have biblical meaning. Here's the other thing. Doctrinal indifference. This is also prominent. Doctrinal indifference. And I feel like positive movements love this stuff. I've heard this said many, many times. I'm so against the churches that always talk about what they're against. That's ironic. We're a church, and then they kind of pride themselves on, we're a church, and we want to talk about what we're for, not what we're against. You got all those churches that are against things. That, that talks a church. It's always, they're always against something. Just the, the, the rock in my shoe kind of thing, you know? But we, we talk about what we're for. I, I, no one said that about us. I'm just making this up. That I know of. Maybe someone has. But there's this idea of, man, let's only talk about what we're for. See, doctrinal indifference is this idea of like, when we get doctrine involved, it makes the church negative. It makes the church angry at each other. It, it, it does all this bad stuff, and, and, and I think that's causing some serious issues. J, J. Gresham Machen, who started Westminster Seminary when Princeton Seminary went liberal, they broke off and started Westminster Theological Seminary, and he said this, quote, men tell us that our preaching should be positive and not negative, that we can preach the truth without attacking error. But if we follow that advice, we shall have to close our Bible and desert its teachings. The New Testament is a polemic book from beginning to end, end quote. We're seeing that in 1 Timothy. He is constantly battling against what is wrong in the church. We spent the entire 16 chapters working through 1 Corinthians, which is an indictment on so many of the issues going on in the church. This is a problem. If we're fearful of being the negative Nellies, we won't be faithful to what God's asked us to be faithful to, namely his word, and to see this. Here's another thing. Have you heard the, and if we get into doctrine too specifically, if we get too worked up about that, it's gonna be divisive in the church. No, error is divisive in the church. Error is divisive in the church. Truth is not divisive. Truth is what unites us. That, that, is, a, that is a bad understanding 
You'll hear things like Christ unites and doctrine divides. Let's just focus on Christ. Let's forget about the definitive nature of the scriptures and just focus on the person of Jesus. Here's the problem. If you don't have the definitive nature in the scriptures, then what Jesus do you have? You have your Jesus. You have the Jesus that you want him to be. You have the Jesus that weirdly enough fits all of the aspects of what you would want in a God. In other words, you don't have Jesus, you have an idol. What you need is Jesus, yes and for sure, but how do we know about Jesus apart from the inerrant word of God? We get to know Jesus through the word. Don't separate him out. Well, we're just gonna unite around Christ. What does that even mean? Which Christ? How would you describe him? Well, he's like this and this and this. How do you know that has any authority? Well, because I think it makes sense. Like, this doesn't go well. This is what happens. Doctrine is what gives us a healthy knowledge of Jesus. We need to be pretty dialed in to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in order to determine what doesn't agree with it. We're going to have to be pretty clear about this. Good doctrine preached is a protection in the church. I was working with the 6-4 interns, and one of the interns, I'm trying to get them preaching earlier. I did the two years, the first time, got the guys preaching in the last uh, two semesters and realized we just, preaching is about reps, and you gotta get a lot of reps in order to get comfortable in order to uh, articulate your thoughts well, which I, I may or may not be doing well today. Um, but, but one of the things that, be, that was interesting in our conversation was uh, we got an aspiring uh, pastoral intern talking with a former pastor friend, trying to get some advice on like, hey, I'm going to get ready to preach in a little bit. I was wondering if you could give me advice. And the guy was like, oh, I got great advice for you. And the intern kind of leaned, leaned in. And he said, you should listen to stand-up comedians. And he said, because, um, and, and let, let's, let's just defer a little bit and just be patient, hold, hold, hold. Let, let me, let's get the best out of the stand-up comedian, okay? The stand-up comedian keeps everyone's attention, okay? The stand-up comedian has direction, a, a thought arc, you know, uh, knows punchlines, is able to kind of like corral the crowd into the direction that he wants to go, like, uh, okay, I'm trying to find some area here because I almost lost my mind when I heard him say that. That the best advice, the first thing that comes out of my head when we're talking about how to prepare to be a preacher is to listen to stand-up comedy. That is the era that you're living in right now. That is how preachers are being trained today to preach the word. They're not even really focused on, I don't even know what that looks like, but it's like, man, I gotta get some of that in order to be effective. And I'm like, no, you gotta know the book and you gotta be so passionate about the Jesus you see revealed in the book that you are lit on fire and then you stand up there and you burn for everybody to see how awesome Jesus is. That's how you learn to preach. It's light and heat. It's light. It's light from the word of God producing heat of passion for Jesus. You get the word right as a servant. You don't come up there to glorify yourself. You don't come up there so you can be awed as this incredible speaker. Who cares about that stuff? Is Christ proclaimed? 
Is Jesus Christ honored and adored? You're like, ah, I brought a friend today. He's getting intense again. Well, here's the thing. I care about your souls. I care about you being right with Jesus. I'm not gonna stand and give an account, and he's not gonna rate preachers from how effective they were in their speaking abilities. He's not gonna rate how funny someone was. And listen, I'm all for funny. It makes it a little bit easier, right? A couple jokes. Like, I, I'm not intentionally not trying to be funny. Every once in a while, it's fun to laugh together, right? Because it's this, you have this, like, relationship. But if that's the goal, we've got serious problems. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, then he says this, and the teaching that accords with godliness, we have a problem. True, faithful gospel preaching, true, faithful preaching of the word of God results in godliness. The teaching he's talking about on the and the teaching that accords with godliness, that part is not a different teaching. We know that, right? He's not talking about the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that extra teaching? This is not like Book of Mormon stuff where you got the Book of Mormon and the doctrines and covenants, okay? He's not talking about that. He's not talking about any of that stuff, okay? He's talking about the word of God from the perspective of its content and results in the second part here. Same Bible, same scriptures, but we're talking about the results. Why? Here's how you know true teaching. What is it producing? What is true teaching producing? Is it producing godliness? If anyone's teaching a different doctrine that doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, in other words, and the teaching which produces godliness, this should be no surprise to us. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. Error can never produce soundness or health, ever. It can't. It may masquerade in sheep's clothing. It may have the appearance of godliness as cults do, but deny its power but you will never get true godliness with error. Truth alone results in godliness when it is applied. When we think about the teaching that accords with godliness, we're talking about the teaching that accords with that which is like God, that which produces that which is like God. We're to train ourselves, 1 Timothy 4 said earlier in verse seven, unto godliness. We're to train ourselves in verse six, in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine unto godliness. So the teaching goes out of the scriptures and the production of the fruit towards godliness in someone's life is the evidence of whether or not someone's a true teacher or not. False teachers deviate from the gospel and the doctrines that are, come from the gospel and that deviation turns into a distortion of true godliness unto something altogether different, i.e. sinfulness. And so the first thing, and it's clear, and it's what we're gonna see on the surface, it's what you're gonna hear in the podcast, it's what you're gonna hear on stage, it's what you're gonna hear as you listen to YouTube, the truth test is huge. But behind that one step is this, number two, the pride test. Do they cause division in the body? Do they cause division in the body? Their teaching, yes, deviates from scripture, but do they cause division in the body? Since one teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit. 
the picture here is he's engulfed in his own smoke. You can't even see the truth because you are so busy <laughs> pontificating that you are believing everything you're saying about your understanding of spiritual realities, you are engulfed in your own arrogant smoke. It's hot air is the idea. Some uh, words that translate it carry the idea of foolish. It can also describe, interestingly enough, mental illness. This, friends, is a sick man may seem totally right on the surface. If they didn't, they wouldn't draw people in. This is a sick man. This is 2 Timothy 3.4 uses the word puffed up as swollen. Think about the language we're talking about, the health issues. He's swollen with conceit. You ever been stung by a bee and are allergic? You ever seen Hitch, right? Yeah. Degenerate American culture right here. Stung by a bee, everyone's like, nope, never read that science book. Hitch, oh yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> of course, I brought it up. So guess who's the hypocrite first, all right? So we've all seen Will Smith get really, really swollen. And we can get a picture for what it looks like to be swollen with conceit. You are so swollen with your own thoughts. Isn't that a crazy thought? And it's so interesting. He talks about he's puffed up with conceit and it leads to three different realities. Three, three, pride is the source, but there's three symptoms. There's an understanding absence, there's unhealthy interests that come from it, and it leads to ungodly outcomes. There, there's, because you're engulfed in your own smoke, you're believing your own stuff, your pride is actually an impediment to true spiritual understanding, and so you'll notice it says he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now, this person may be smart-sounding enough. This person, you have to understand, might be steeped in enough Bible to obscure, confuse, and convince of their position and yet still be in this category of understanding nothing. They possess a wisdom, you have to understand, but it's not a godly wisdom. It is an earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom like James 3.15 talks about. I want you to also understand that the severity of the language is intense. He is puffed up with conceit, and he understands a few things not as well as others who believe the truth. He didn't say that. He understands a little bit. Give these guys credit. He's at least saying God and Bible and Jesus. No, he says he understands nothing. Loved ones, get the gospel of Jesus Christ wrong and you are wrong on everything no matter how many other things you have right. If you get the gospel of Jesus Christ wrong, you are wrong on everything no matter how many things you may have right. They understand nothing. Why? Because true spiritual understanding doesn't come apart from the Spirit of God opening eyes for blind people spiritually to see the glories of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. That it actually pleases God. We, we read about this in 1 Corinthians. It pleases God for since in the wisdom of God, this was God's wise plan, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Rather, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
God was pleased to have the smartest people with the PhDs next to their name, with big followings, large platforms, and best-selling books to not understand God through human wisdom. But rather, the most simple, basic Christian who's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who's... uh, eyes, the scales of uh, of the unbelieving reality of your former life has been removed by the Spirit such that now you can approach the Word of God and see Jesus Christ for who He is as revealed in the Word. You are in a far, far better place. This person has an absence of understanding and it leads to these unhealthy interests He understands nothing. He's rejected the gospel. You have to be clear when people say they're not religious because they're not Christian. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. They are religious. No, I'm an atheist. Okay, you are making a religion out of atheism. And I can show you that. And let's break it down. What do Christians do? Hmm, seems an awful lot like what you do. It's just self-defined versus God-defined. Don't have the time for it refers, but I'd, I'd be glad to talk about it, just not today, refers to a, he has an unhealthy craving. Here, here's what it refers to, a serious illness. He has this illness. There's this morbid desire for controversy, which is basically useless questions and for quarrels about words, and that quarrels about words is actually one word, it's, talking, it's, it's literally saying word battles, which is either a dispute about words, like you're taking a word in the Bible and you're like, well, I don't really think it means that, right? And you're just like destroying some sort of serious doctrine of scripture, or it's understood in the way of like, I'm using words as weapons to win the battle. Uh, I think both of those are generally probably built into the same idea here, but they have this craving, right? Because you don't stop worshiping. You don't stop worshiping. You, you have to find some understanding of how to explain the world because it's the way we were made as image bearers of God, and so it's not a surprise that we were made to long for God and his revealed will as it is given to us in the word of God. But when you reject God, you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, the craving doesn't stop, it just directs itself in a different way. And you realize that in twisting some things a little bit, maybe after having gotten your PhD, you can actually bring people into you. You can draw people in. Well, I know everyone's been teaching like this, but let me say that I have a new way based on my studies of understanding this. And just generally speaking, new is not true, right? That's just helpful to understand. But people do this. And they get into these quarrels and it produces these effects, and here's where we're seeing the difference. Remember, true teaching the gospel produces true godliness. When you get off the gospel and the doctrines of the gospel, you get ungodliness, so watch the ungodly outcomes here. You ready? This is the opposite. When you don't have the gospel right, here's what it produces. Envy, that's the want part holding a grudge against another out of desire for something they possess. You want their gifts, you want their platform, you want their popularity, you want their prosperity, you want their their ability to say something. You start to get envious of others, maybe about assessing your own moral value. We we do this all the time, don't we? Um, 
we have this kind of innate sense of comparing ourselves to other people. Are they more moral or less moral than me? And based on that, I have a higher view or lower view of myself, even though that has nothing to do with the gospel. There's an envy that false teaching creates because false teaching is always about you. It's always about being a good person. It's always about seeing a standard of righteousness that is meant to be met by you. And the problem is any true standard of righteousness as developed by God, and let's be honest, truly known in the conscience is not perfectly fulfilled by you and thus the struggle. And you're always gonna find someone that's a little better than you at something and so it creates this envy. And that envy leads to dissension, which is the spirit of contention or competition, go figure. Why? Because righteousness is something to be battled for based on your good efforts, your good deeds. Every perversion of the gospel goes back to how do you make yourself right with God? How do you make yourself right with an ultimate reality? Well, now you're starting to realize that if that person's more righteous than you, then guess who God likes more? Ain't you. And so it leads to this kind of dissension. And then the dissension moves into words. You start to speak slanderous things. Why? Because if you can drop their image, guess who gets exalted in that? If you can start to spray a little bit of this in the church and denounce this person for what they're doing, you can rise up in the midst of that to a higher level, feel better about yourself, more appeasing to your God, or frankly, lack of a God, maybe your God is yourself. We have an unbelievable ability to be self-righteous and to hold that as a badge of honor in our lives. So we'll say words that'll make us feel better about ourselves than about others. It'll lead to evil suspicions. We start ascribing bad motives and evil motives to what they do, and it leads to this constant friction, this rubbing together. Here's the thing about false teaching is it just causes this rub. There's no peace because you can't have peace where there isn't a pursuit of truth. Now with theological triage, what I was talking about earlier, we're gonna disagree on some things, but at least we value the fact of what we're saying is, let's be humble in our approach to one another, let's hold up the truth of God's word, let's value in the right order that which we should value of the doctrines of scripture, right? We can love each other and still be like, hey, we can be united to one another because truth is our boss, truth is what we're after, and we wanna pursue that together with patience and grace and wisdom and all of that kind of stuff. But if you don't have truth at the foundation, if that's not a pursuit, then you're gonna be constantly rubbing with one another. There's going to be this friction that's created, this kind of grind that takes place because only the truth unifies. And once all these traits come to fruition, the only possible result is Depraved minds and deprived of the truth. You get these false teachers, they exchange the gospel, they input a corrupted gospel and corrupted doctrines, craving to be the one that's the head of attention, craving to be the one that has the platform, craving to be the one that gets to be the voice speaking out over others. How do you get that voice? Well, you start to stir up controversy. Well, this word doesn't really mean this, and this word doesn't really mean this, and I'll tell you what this word means, and all of a sudden you get this platform, you get this drawing, it creates all kinds of chaos, and the final kind of end result is the people that you are 
teaching become depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. It's interesting, the word depraved in mind is used in the physical sense to describe the effect of rust on iron or moths on clothing. It's even used to describe the bodies of starving people. You are depraved in mind. You are ruined in the sense of corrupt. You've been corrupted. The mental and moral faculties that you're working with have been corrupted spiritually. And it's talking about the settled condition of being corrupt. And then you're, you're deprived of the truth, meaning that You've been robbed of it. The word here is destitute. It, mean, it comes from a word that means to steal or to rob, that you have been robbed of the truth. When, the, when false teaching takes root, you are robbed of the truth, and it is a passive verb, meaning you have been robbed, but you're not a victim of someone else's thievery. It's idolatry. See, what happens in idolatry is idolatry is the giving way, the giving over in your pride to the cravings which now direct your life. You are basically submitting yourself before a false god and going after it with everything you have. This kind of deprived of the truth reality is you aren't a victim. You have been given over and have given yourself over through the teaching that has taken place to worshiping idols, to worshiping that which isn't God, to getting at the very heart of what's going on here. He says there's a truth test, there's a pride test, and then he says there's a motivation test, and here's what it is at the very core. There is a different God that the false teacher is operating from. The motivation test is simple. Do they treat ministry as a means to money? So many passages talk about this. Money, 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 money. What do pastors want? False teachers, money. Paul knew this. So when he was talking about the fact that he didn't cease to preach the whole counsel of God, but he knew fierce wolves were gonna come in among him. Do you know what he says at the end in Acts 20, verse 33? He says, I coveted no one's silver and gold. He knew that was important. 1 Timothy 3.3 says that a qualification of an elder is not to be a lover of money. 1 Timothy, excuse me, Titus 1.7 says you're not to be greedy. This is again, qualifications of an elder, not to be greedy for gain. Titus 1.11, false teachers teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Jude 11, they abandon themselves to Balaam's error for the sake of gain. 2 Peter 2.15, they love gain from wrongdoing. See, godliness isn't the goal to the end of glorifying God. Godliness is a means to another end. Their gain is God. Their gain, their wanting money is God. God to them, and they use God as a means to get what they want, which is their ultimate God. They're serving the God of money to get that, using God as a means to get their ultimate goal, which is very much idolatry. It is a suppressing of the truth about God, causing your worship to be inverted, and then when your worship is inverted and you're worshiping someone or something that isn't God, the way you worship is you worship by sinning. 
in order to get what that God has for you to get, which you believe is best and you believe is ultimate. And so you have this desire, I'm willing to twist the truth to make it sound good, so I'll build a following, people will pay me, and I can make a killing of this because my God in the end is my money. And this brings everyone who engages in it into destruction. And this is at the very heart of the problem in the Bible, is that all of us are this, right? All of us have engaged in some form of idolatry. We're seeing it in the way that the false teachers' lives bring this out all the way to the very motivation. But we have all chosen in one way or another to worship or serve something or someone other than the living God. And how do you know? Because you've sinned before. Your sin is a form of worship of another God. You were saying, what I wanted in that moment was not righteousness, I wanted unrighteousness. Wasn't what, what God wanted ultimately, I wanted my craving met. And if you go down that road all the way to the very core, it's gonna be something like I wanted money, or I wanted comfort, or I wanted power, or I wanted sex, or I wanted pleasure, or I wanted something that's ultimate that you were willing to obey instead of God. And so this is exactly why the gospel is so important. This is why Paul is drumming this beat over and over and over. Sin is the outflow of idolatry. If you're gonna be rescued from idolatry, you need to be rescued from the enslaving idols that have your heart, that have your passions, that are leading you to be enslaved. How does that take place? By Jesus dying for sin. By Jesus died, because we are enslaved to sin apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's death on the cross severed the power of sin, paid the penalty of sin for us so that sin could be forgiven. And when sin is forgiven and where sin is forgiven, idols lose their power. And now, with Christ at the center and his gospel in our hearts, we go forward by faith desiring to seek to please God and not what used to gratify our desires because we have new desires and new affections with our new Lord, the one who made us in the beginning, Jesus Christ. The pattern is just so clear deviate from scripture's teaching regarding the gospel and its doctrines and it results in an ungodly life. That evidence itself in understanding absence, they lack it, they have none of it, in unhealthy interests and ungodly outcomes, resulting in corrupt minds and deprived of truth, working to serve their ultimate master, which in this case is money, and I'll leave it in the words of Jesus. As, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, it is um, it's good to hear your word, and it is good to be under it again, and maybe reminded afresh of some ways that this can get twisted. And there are many, many out there, Lord, that would look to twist it. And we are not immune to that ourselves. So God, help us to be faithful to the word of God. Help us to be faithful to um, loving each other and pursuing this unity around truth. And we don't have to believe exactly the same on everything, but we need to believe that the truth is what unites us and a pursuit ever increasingly in that direction is what is good for us. 
And Father, I pray that you would just help us to be clear about the teaching of the gospel, that you would help us to be clear in our lives because that teaching accords with godliness such that Christ would be honored, his word would be proclaimed, people would be saved, and followers of Jesus would grow to become more and more like him. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.